Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Psalm 20. Let's read Psalm 20 together. For the choir director, a Psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob set you securely on high. May he send you help from the sanctuary and support you from Zion. May he remember all your meal offerings and find your burnt offering acceptable. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your counsel. We will sing for joy over your victory. And in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord, our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stood upright. Save, O Lord. May the King answer us in the day we call. This is the word of the Lord. This psalm is a model prayer for a king. It's a kind of prayer that a congregation would pray together. It's a public prayer. David, the king of Israel, wrote it and gave it to the choir director so that the people of Israel would sing this prayer together. But it's a prayer for the king. Now that might seem weird to you because here you have the king, David, writing a prayer for the people to sing for him. Here's how I want you to pray for me when you gather together in worship. And we could think, well, that's, that's weird. That's like self-serving. You know, he's by his authority telling the people how to pray for him. And more than that, he's writing it down in Scripture. This is the inspired word of God. Seems kind of heavy-handed for the king to tell the people how they have to pray for him. But if you think about it, that's not weird at all. Uh, This happens all the time. It's what the Apostle Paul does. He writes Scripture, and as he's writing to, to, to people, he says, this is how I want you to pray for me. And it's the inspired word of Scripture. He says in Ephesians 6, 19, for example, pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Here's how I want you to pray for me. This is how you must pray for me. This is the word of God. Pray for me this way. Same thing in 2 Thessalonians 3.1. He says, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. So it's not, it's not strange for a pastor or a father or a king to instruct his people how to pray for him. That's helpful to us. We need to hear, we need to know how to pray rightly for those who are in authority. And so here's King David. He's writing a psalm for the people of Israel to sing for him on his behalf as they pray for him as their king. Now think about this for a minute. This psalm brings together two things that everybody hates to put together. 
no one wants to put these things together that this psalm puts together. Both Christians and secularists, neither believers nor unbelievers, the faithful or faithless, everybody hates to put these two things together today. What are they? Well, religion and the state, right? Religion and government. Here you have a prayer for the king. We hate to put these things together. We've been told over and over and over and over, it's been so hammered into our mind, into our soul as American Christians, that these are the things that may never come together. Religion and government. But the fact is, every government is religious. The question is never, will a government be religious? Of course it will. The question is, which religion will a government embrace? Which religion will a nation uphold as their highest authority? Which God will they appeal to for their laws and for their morals and for their salvation in days of trouble? God made a world in which it is impossible to separate a nation from religion. God made a world in which it's impossible to separate civil authority from religion. Why? Well, this is ultimately true because all authorities that exist in every place, including this one, at every time, including this one, every government exists by the authority of God himself. So no no matter what any particular government or king or president thinks, it is impossible to separate God from the state. Romans 13.1 tells us this with crystal clarity, right? Romans 13.1, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. That's talking about the civil government. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Every civil government on the face of the earth at all times in every place is established by God. There is no such thing as a realm that has no connection with God. There is no such thing as a government that exists independent from God. And so all all human government, by definition, is religious. All human government appeals to an ultimate authority. Now, of course, a wicked government that exalts itself against God and puts itself in the place of God will not acknowledge God as its rightful head. Unbelieving politicians of every party don't acknowledge the true and living God as the source of their authority. Muslim kings through the ages didn't acknowledge the one and true and living God as a source of their authority. Pagan chiefs didn't acknowledge the one true and living God as a source of their authority. But that doesn't mean it's not true. And it doesn't mean that their governments are secular far from it. 
there will always be an ultimate authority. Every law in every land assumes an ultimate authority. There must be a sovereign, there must be a king. And if God is not honored as king, then it will be the president or the people or the state. But there will be a sovereign authority and that sovereign authority will always rule with godlike absolute claims. Always. And by the way, what happens when you do away with the authority of God? When you do away with the authority of God, you end up with nothing but tyranny. Tyranny. You end up with nothing but rule by the arbitrary whims of godless men. So all godless governments refuse to acknowledge the true and living God as a source of their civil authority. They refuse to worship Jesus as the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the president of presidents, the governor of governors, right? They refuse to acknowledge him. But that never means that they abandon the idea of worship altogether. No, because we always exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. We never stop worshiping altogether. What we do is transfer the allegiance and the honor and the worship and the trust that God alone deserves over to false gods. Creatures, deities, ideals, even documents, anything but the one true and living God. We don't stop worshiping, we just start worshiping something that's false. This is what the Word of God teaches us. Now we see this everywhere in Scripture and in history. Governments have gods, governments have gods. The Egyptians worshiped all kinds of gods, remember? And when, when the one true and living God comes to Egypt to free his people from Pharaoh, and he brings judgment on the people, he's not just judging the people, he's judging their gods. He says in Exodus 12, 12, the Lord himself says this, I will go through the land of Egypt and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. He's judging the gods of the nation. The Canaanites worshiped Baal. The Ammonites worshiped Moloch. The Philistines worshiped Dagon. The Romans, of course, worship all kinds of gods. Jupiter, Mercury, Diana, gods and goddesses. And that worship, all through the history of the world, has always been intimately connected with the civil government. Always connected with the king, with the ruler, with the governing authority of the civil realm. For example, do you remember Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, right? Nebuchadnezzar, it says in Daniel 3, listen to this, Daniel 3, 1 to 6. Nebuchadnezzar the king 
made an image of gold, just happened to be of him. It's an image of himself. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and its width six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the, pre the prefects, and the governors. These are all government officials. These are all civil magistrates, right? The satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, to you the command is given. O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. This is religion and the state. This is a government imposing worship of a God. Worship the image of King Nebuchadnezzar or you will die. We see this in the Roman Empire when Christians were killed for refusing to offer a pinch of incense and say, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Lord. That's all they had to do, little pinch of incense, Caesar is Lord, they refused to do it and they died. And we see it here in America today. Worship and serve success, worship and serve money, worship and serve tolerance, worship and serve sexual perversion, worship and serve America itself. Because in America today, you can pile up as many gods as you want. You can have as many gods as you want. But don't you dare claim there is only one true and living God. You do that and you are a traitor against the state religion. You are a disturber of the peace. You are a blasphemer. You are a heretic if you claim allegiance to one true and living God. If you claim absolute and unmixed devotion to King Jesus, you are a dangerous, subversive, unpatriotic, potential terrorist, a radical, an extremist. You won't pinch some incense and say, America is Lord. And we see this inseparable tie between government and gods everywhere. We see it here in Psalm 20. Psalm 20, verse 7. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, 
but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. That boasting is absolutely a religious act. It's an act of praise or devotion. It's, a, it's an act of glory. It's an act of worship. Some worship chariots and some worship horses, some worship wealth, some worship military power, some worship sexual perversion, some worship tolerance, some worship tradition, and yes, dare I say it, some even worship the United States Constitution. But we will worship the Lord, our God. We will boast in the name of the Lord, our God. Well, okay, but this, this praying for the king thing, right? This, this mixing, this praying for the, 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 the government, that must be an Old Testament thing, right? That's what we think. We all know that today, in the New Testament, the church has nothing to do with politics and nothing to do with civil governments, right? This is what we all believe. All, all we're supposed to do as Christians is to sing. We can do that. We can listen to sermons. We can take the Lord's Supper. We can pray, but not for politics. Oh, no. We should only pray for our personal, private needs. And if you're really godly, you'll only pray for your personal, private, spiritual needs, right? Um, don't go messing up prayer with the stuff of this world. God can't be bothered with selling your house. God doesn't care about that. God can't be bothered with, uh, with your, your sick aunt. God definitely doesn't care about who the, who the president or the governor or the mayor is. God believes in the separation of church and state, right? That's what, that's what the Bible teaches, isn't it? Isn't that what the New Testament teaches? I mean, it must be, because that's what we all think, isn't it? Well, actually, no. The New Testament teaches no such thing. Turn to 1 Timothy 2. We have words for that? There they are. 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 8. Listen to this. This is the Apostle Paul writing by inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the authority of Jesus Christ. He says, first of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and for all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, just one, there is one God, and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth, therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. 
listen, brothers and sisters, it's high time we started thinking like biblical Christians and not secular Americans. It's high time we start thinking like biblical Christians. This is the Bible. And not like secular Americans. Since when does the Bible teach that God is indifferent to the realm of politics and civil government? Where did that idea come from? It didn't come from the Bible. Jesus Christ said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus Christ is called the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He, he is called the King of the nations. He is called in Revelation 1.5, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Do you remember what God himself says in Psalm 2? Do you remember Psalm 2? One of the psalms that we've, we've been singing together. God says, now therefore, O kings, right? He's talking to civil rulers, rulers of governments. He says, now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son. Kiss the Son, worship the Son of God that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. And here in 1 Timothy 2, the Apostle Paul commands us to pray for kings and for all who are in authority. Why? Because God cares nothing about politics or civil government? No, that's crazy. Everything in this world belongs to God. Everything is under the kingship of our Lord Jesus. Everything is under the dominion of our Lord Christ. Isn't it, isn't it convenient when the rulers of this world, when the rulers of this country claim that Jesus has nothing to do with them, and they'll even go so far as to say the Bible says Jesus has nothing to do with them. Why would we believe them when they tell us that? Why is that so firmly rooted in our heads as absolute truth when in fact it's a lie? Why do we insist on thinking like secular Americans and not like biblical Christians? We must pray for our civil leaders, our presidents and governors and congressmen and mayors and councilmen. God commands us to pray for them. And the peace and prosperity of the church and the advance of the, the kingdom of God depend on it. The Apostle Paul says, first of all then I urge that entreaties and prayers Petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and for all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. We are to pray for the kings so that the church can do her work. 
Now, according to King David, what, what are the, what's the content of those prayers to look like? What's that to sound like? Here in Psalm 20, how are we to pray? What do we ask God to do for our civil leaders? Look at verse 1, Psalm 20, verse 1. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. O Lord, answer the king when he prays. This, this assume, assumes two things about the king, doesn't it? Number one, he has days of trouble. That's easy to see, right? Number two, he calls out to God in days of trouble. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob set you securely on high. May the name of God, the character and the power of God set you securely above the reach and above the corruption of the enemy. Verse two, may he send you help from the sanctuary and support you from Zion. May God cause the church of God and the people of God to rally around you and support you in your work. Verse three, may he remember all your meal offerings and find your burnt offering acceptable. May God look at your worship, O king, and find it acceptable to him. Verse four, may he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your counsel. In other words, may God give you wisdom, O king, to know what is good for your people and may God bring all of your good plans to pass. Verse five, we will sing for joy over your victory and in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May God cause the people under your authority to worship God for all his mercy to our land. May God cause the people to be humble to glorify God for our victories. And the last line of verse five, may the Lord fulfill all your petitions. May God answer all your prayers for the welfare of your realm. Now think about this. Can you imagine praying those things for our leaders? Can you imagine praying those things for our leaders? For those who are in authority over us. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? Why is it hard to imagine? Because all these requests assume that our leaders are godly. Every one of them assumes that our leaders are godly that they worship the one true and living God, that they pray and plan in the name of God. Well, how does that happen? Now, right now, you're thinking, well, it shouldn't happen because we all know separation of church and state. It's in the Bible somewhere. But it's not. So how is it to happen? How do we get leaders like that? Only God can make them. Can God make a, a godly man? Yeah. This room is filled with them. Right? How did God make you godly? You didn't do it, did you? 
God did it. Only God can make godly leaders. That's why the Apostle Paul teaches us to pray for our leaders. Look at this one more time. Look at, look at 1 Timothy 2 one more time. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and for all who are in authority. Psalm 20 gives us some things to pray, right? So that we may lead a, tran a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. See, do you see this? We are to pray. We are to pray for our kings, for our president, for all who are in authority, first and foremost for the salvation of their souls. God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He's not shifting gears here and, and totally changing the subject. He's telling us why we need to pray for them and how. We are to pray for the salvation of kings and for all who are in authority so that they will bow their knee to King Jesus and start ruling as godly men so they'll get out of the, of the way of the church, so that they'll stop persecuting the church, so that they'll stop hindering the work of the church, so that instead they'll make her work easy. That's what the Apostle Paul says, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life. Tranquil life, what do you think that means? Why do you think he wants us to lead a tranquil life? Does tranquil mean so that we'll have our personal, private, quiet, little, pointless um, vacation of a life? Sitting under the tree, swinging on the hammock. Tranquil, you know, tranquil. No, he doesn't. Tranquil means free from tyranny, free from persecution so that we may lead a tranquil, so that the church may lead a tranquil, tranquil, a peaceful, quiet life in all godliness, doing the work of godliness and dignity, not hiding in caves as we worship. Not being charged with hate crimes for calling homosexuals to repentance. Pray for our civil leaders. Pray for them. Don't just pray for wisdom. When, when the Apostle Paul calls us to pray for our civil leaders, he's not just thinking, pray that they'll balance the budget, you know? Cut to the chase and pray for the salvation of their souls. They need wisdom. The book of Proverbs is all about how to rule as a godly civil magistrate. It's a king writing to his son who's going to be the king in his place. We, they need wisdom. 
But what's the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord. There's no fear of the Lord apart from the salvation of the Lord. Now, real quickly, I want to I shift the focus of the lens for the rest of this psalm. Okay, I want to I twist the lens a little bit, take something else into focus. We know that King David is a type of King Jesus, right? We should all know this. The psalms are full of this kind of thing. David's kingdom is a type of Jesus' kingdom. God made promises to David. To King David, God made covenant promises to him that a descendant of David would sit on the throne forever. Not just the the earthly throne of, of, of Israel, but a throne of a kingdom. He says in Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. But remember, the Bible teaches that the government has nothing to do with Jesus. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know how that works, but there. Anyway, the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is a kingdom that is bigger than the kingdom of David. It starts when the sun is given and it continues to grow and it goes forever. Speaking of our Lord Jesus, the prophet Daniel writes in, in Daniel seven fourteen, and to him, to Jesus, to our Lord Christ, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And so it's right for us to shift the focus here with this psalm. It's right and biblical to see both the need to pray for the civil magistrate and at the same time to see something much greater, the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. John Calvin, uh, writing about Psalm 20, says this. He says, the design of the Holy Spirit in my judgment was to deliver to the church, to the church, to us, a common form of prayer which, as we may gather from the words, was to be used whenever she was threatened with any danger. Whenever the church is threatened with any danger, Calvin says we should pull out Psalm 20 and start praying it. Or singing it. And now you can, right? He says, listen to this. He says it is particularly to be noticed that under the figure of this temporal kingdom, under, the, under the, the figure, the type, the image of David's kingdom, there was described a government far more excellent on which the whole joy and happiness of the church depended. The object, therefore, which David had expressly in view was to exhort all the children of God to cherish such a holy concern about the kingdom of Christ as would stir them up to continual prayer in its behalf. We are to pray for our kings and the civil authorities. We are also to pray for the church, for the kingdom of Christ. 
Now look at these words through that lens for just a minute. Verse one, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob set you securely on high. May he send you help from the sanctuary and support you from Zion. May he remember all your meal offerings and find your burnt offerings acceptable. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your counsel. We will sing for joy over your victory. And in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. The church has days of trouble, right? We're living in days of trouble for the church. That's no surprise. That's not weird. Oh God, hear us in the days of trouble. Defend us. Set us securely on high. Send us help and support from your sanctuary. Hear our prayers. Find our worship acceptable. Grant our heart's desire to see your kingdom advance and bless our plans. And what is our confidence as we pray those things on on behalf of Christ's kingdom? Verse five, we will sing for joy over your victory. We will. We will sing for joy over the victory of Christ. And in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. Look at the second half of the psalm through the lens of Christ's kingdom. Verse six. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stood upright. Save, O Lord. May the king answer us in the day we call. Think about that in terms of the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God. Jesus is building his kingdom. Yes, his kingdom has days of trouble, but he is building his kingdom. And his kingdom is not entirely future outside of this time, outside of this world. He is building his kingdom here and now. The first things out of Jesus' mouth that we have recorded that he said when he came preaching in his earthly ministry, Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is coming at some undisclosed date thousands of years from now. No, he said the, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Our Lord said to men standing around him in, in Luke 9.27, He says, but I say to you truthfully, there are some standing here right now, he said, at that day, on that time that he said it, there are some standing here right now who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God is here. He's building it. That's why he taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That has to do with now, that has to do with here. Now it won't be built by the strength of chariots and horses, not by the strength of politics or political parties. It has nothing to do with that. The strength is his strength 
The power is his power. The battle is the Lord's. Are you praying for the kingdom of God? Are you praying for the kingdom of God? Are you praying for the church? Are you praying for this church? Pray for this church. Pray for our church here. Pray for all that we're trying to do to spread the rule of Christ here. Nothing we do will prosper. Nothing we do will work apart from the from the blessing of God. And God delights to give his blessing to those who ask him. And we don't have because you don't ask. Pray for this church. But so far beyond that, pray for the church. Pray for the church. Spread across the globe, terrible as an army with banners. Pray for her. Pray for the church. Pray for the kingdom of God everywhere. Pray that the Lord Christ would bring the nations under his rule. Pray that the gates of hell will not stand against him and his church. Is that a crazy thing to pray? No. That is what our Lord said. Do not be double-minded about the victory of Christ. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's what he said. So why are we doubting? Why are we double-minded? Well, you say, you know, look around. That's why I'm double-minded. <laughs> look around. Look at where our culture is going. All the evidence that I see says Christ is not ruling and reigning at all. It looks like, to me, that Jesus has abandoned this world. That's what it looks like. But listen, listen, we are to have faith. We are to live by faith. Faith in God's clear purposes and clear faithful promises. We don't live by sight. We may not live by sight. We live by faith. And the faith that we live by is the same faith that our father Abraham had. Remember Abraham? Abraham's called the father of all who believe. If you have faith that's true, that's genuine, you have to have the kind of faith that Abraham had. And God made promises to Abraham, but remember, all the evidence, all the evidence that Abraham could see pointed in the other direction. Remember this? Just like us today, God makes promises to us about his church, about the nations, but all the evidence is the other direction. So what does that mean? Does that mean God, God's promises are false? What does Abraham say? God promised Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, that his offspring would bless all the nations, but Abraham looked at his own dead body, his old body, and Sarah's old fruitless womb. All the evidence is to the contrary of God's promise. But what did he do? 
even in the face of contrary evidence. Romans 4 says this, 19 to 22. Listen. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body. Right? He thought about his own body. Now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Now, this is what he sees. This is the evidence. I'm 100 years old. My wife's barren. That's what I see. That's the evidence. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. That is the faith of our father Abraham. It's a faith that is fully assured that what God has promised, he is able to perform. Has that changed? Has Jesus Christ promised that my, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church as she advances? Has he promised that or not? He has. Don't think like a secular American. Think like a Christian. Think like a, a child of Abraham. Is that your faith? It's the only faith that can save you. If you're not going to believe these promises, why in the world would you believe any other promises? If you're not going to believe what he said about the church, why would you believe what he said about you? Don't be double-minded. This is the only faith that saves. And it's the only faith that'll make you pray and work and live in hope for the spread of God's fame, even, even here, even now. Pray for our civil leaders. Pray for our government. Pray for them as God commands you to. Do not be faithless and disobedient. Pray for them. And pray for the kingdom of God. Pray for the church. These are days of trouble. The trouble is going to get worse. That's okay. It doesn't change anything. God is, Jesus Christ is reigning. He knows what he's doing. Let's trust him. Pray with me. Dear Father, give us faith, we pray. Our faith is very weak. And we are more, uh, we confess to you, Lord, that we are more susceptible to the voices of our day, the voices of our culture than we are to your voice in your word. Lord, forgive us and have mercy. 
Strengthen our faith. Make us bold in our prayers. Make us bold in our words, in our actions, in our acts of mercy and love and compassion for those around us as we work in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to see his kingdom advance. Oh Lord, make us pray. We ask in Christ's name, amen.